Greetings, Minecrafters, and welcome to another Minecraft discussion on this glorious day. My name is Kimberly Quinn, and once again, I am just thrilled to uh, have the the privilege to be able to to host a podcast and have these super meaningful discussions. And and uh, <clears throat> today, I'd like to discuss the neuroscience sort of underlying mindfulness. You know, many people think, oh, that's a touchy-feely. And no, it's not. We can actually see brain changes on an fMRI. So I'm also not going to, you know, stab pins in everybody's heads, killing you with statistics. But I'm going to give you a little bit of just, you know, sort of uh, a couple of research-based facts just to, to really, you know, drive the point home that this is so real. We know that mindfulness heals physically, mentally, spiritually, everything. And so I want to give a shout out first to Sarah McKay. And I, th I think many of you know, uh, next to, or in addition to, or whatever, uh, John Kabat-Zinn is, is probably uh, at the top of the mindfulness gurus. And then Deepak Chopra also. And so Deepak has his own, well, they both do, have his, has his own website. And uh, Sarah's a writer for his website. And so this is a really nice kind of down-to-earth chat that, that, I want to have based on, you know, Sarah McKay's article. And, and it, it's just so important to realize that these are real, real brain changes. When we uh, practice mindfulness five, even five to 15 minutes per day, the, the lifelong impact is huge, absolutely huge for memory and creativity and just general focus and reactivity, you know, all kinds of things. And so this is what we're going to chat about today. You know, so to begin, you know, I have my chat with my mind crafters, the, the college course that I teach at Champlain College in, in Burlington, Vermont. We start out with this because day one, you know, mindfulness and gratitude are, are definitely the foundational, two of the biggest foundational bricks for the course. So we talk about what mindfulness is. So basically it means paying attention and without judgment to, to the experiences we are having in this moment right now. And John Kabat-Zinn would add in, as if your life depended on it, because it does. The only life we got going is in this moment right here, right now. So we have the non-judgmental piece. I think this is really important. Okay, so we're attenuating whether you're doing the dishes, you're sewing, you're playing soccer in a you know pickup league, you're gardening, you're having a conversation, you're on the chairlift, you're having a shower, you're having you know five star sex with your partner. Good for you as long as it's you know loving, respectful, and consensual. Be in your body absolutely. So it's really just about being in the moment, and that's one of the things I love about it most because it means, and not that the other forms of meditation aren't good. Of course they're good. It's kind of like I don't know taste for anything else like movies or food or you know you got to find what fits for you or like a shoe, right? Um, I love mindfulness personally because it's not about carving out time to yet add to a to-do list. And if that's how you're thinking about it, John Kabat-Zinn would say not ready because it's not about doing. It's mindfulness is about being, not doing. And we can do anything mindfully. It's just about being in the moment. It's not about, you can sit palms up in a lotus position, eating yogurt in a cave like a Tibetan monk, but you don't have to. No offense to monks. I love monks. Um, it, but it's about, you know, taking a hot shower without bringing you know, your colleagues in there and, you know, your students in there and your classmates in there or your friends and the person you have to have a meeting with on Tuesday and you're nervous about that or bringing the relatives you don't like in there or bringing whoever in there. We want to keep all everybody out of the shower, unless, of course, 
that person's real and then, you know, good for you. You know, so in, so addition to the, the non-judgment piece, we have the, it goes with you. Mind, mindfulness on the go, right? It, because especially for those of us in the Fast Mind Club, you know, you got a better chance of seeing the good Lord himself than, you know, for me, having me be relaxed, you know, sitting. You know, my husband will say, oh, and he now knows, of course, better. We've been married for like a thousand years. But, you know, come sit on the couch and watch a movie with me. And sometimes I will. Board, board games are my nightmare, usually. I can occasionally do a, a fast-paced Monopoly game because it's moving quickly, but I just don't relax that way. I relax when I'm in motion. So mindfulness really works for me and my wiring. The uh, The non-judgmental part is so super important because and we, my students and I have, have a discussion about it each and every semester, typically in the beginning, usually on the first day, and maybe this, there's rollover into the second day because we really talk about the non-judgmental piece because... Many types of meditation, again, they're, they're good for you. This is just, um, if you got to find the fit, it, uh, many of them are about kind of creating a thought vacuum, you know, just get, push the thoughts out and, you know, like mm, mantra, mantra, mantra. And that can be great if that works for you, but mindfulness is not about that, which also works for the fast minders because thoughts are going to continue to roll through. And John Kabat-Zinn talks about like waves on the ocean. You got to learn how to surf. You're not going to stop the waves, Right. And so when an, an anxious thought kind of rolls through, it, it, we acknowledge this as, okay, there went an anxious thought. So what? Who cares? And welcome to the human race. And my students, I watch them almost get lighter sitting there because this generation, and a lovely, young, lovely generation of young adults, you know, we've never seen in this, at least in the United States anyway, a more anxious and depressed generation of young adults than who's currently in my classrooms. <laughs> like, I mean, me, you know, obviously I mean broader sense. And so they're, they're very, very afraid of failure. They're very anxious. And it's nice that they learn that mindfulness is, is at least one thing you can do without worrying about doing it wrong. You know, if an anxious thought comes through, you say, okay, apparently I'm a little nervous today. Okay. So the hell what? Okay. You know, as far as the benefits, I mean, the visit, mindfulness is the gift that keeps on giving because we feel uh, more relaxed in the moment doing it doesn't mean we're not talking about perfect. You know, that's a word I don't like. Anybody listens to the Minecraft episode, you're better off dropping the F-bomb than using that word towards you for yourself or anybody else. So it's about progress and not perfection. So if you're, you know, it doesn't mean you're fully relaxed, but you're more relaxed. And, uh, and in that moment, and then it's cumulative, kind of like running. If you run four or five days a week and then, or six days a week, and then you have a, a three-day stretch where, where, um, you know, you didn't feel well or you were on vacation or you had, you know, a wedding to go to with all kinds of rehearsal dinners and you couldn't you fit it, you know, just body, it was just too hard. You're still in better shape, even though you didn't run for three days because you usually run. So if you are usually being mindful, you're going to extend your, excuse me, extend your life. You're going to be in general, more focused. So again, even if it's not in that minute, it's later in the day, you will be more focused in general if you practice mindfulness, which again means being in the moment, if you're doing the dishes and being present, that counts. So, and more relaxed. And um, it also, when we practice mindfulness, it, it sort of immediately shifts our mood into a more positive mind space. And it gets easier to make the shift when we practice consistently. So, uh, and also overall well being, it enhances our overall well being. We also become more aware of ourselves. We, I mean, you cannot go wrong become, becoming more self-aware. It's just absolutely huge. And 
Um, physically wise, our, our immune systems become stronger when we practice mindfulness. And I read an article eons ago, so I can't really quote it. I can just give you the general gist. It was super empirical, um, you know, very legit hospital-based because when anything's hospital-based, it's ultra controlled. So it's super credible and reliable or reliable and valid is what I should have said. Um, because it was, I think it was either two or three times a day. I forget short amounts of time, like 15 minutes. And I believe the trial was over several months and it was with type two diabetics. They had a good sample size. And by the end of it, they controlled for all the other stuff, diet and exercise, all that stuff. By the end of the, of the few months, it was 70 something percent of the type two diabetics were, were completely off of insulin, completely, completely off of insulin. And uh, I mean, that's pretty amazing. Then to take it a step farther, they actually looked at the pancreatic cells, which I believe are called the islets of Langerhans, and they saw changes in the actual cells. So granted, I'm taking this from my head from, from some years ago, but that was a basic gist is that the majority of the type 2 diabetics made significant, you know, cellular progress by practicing mindfulness. Mindfulness heals, heals the body, heals the, you know, the mind and heals the spirit. And, you know, in the, in the Chopra site, when Sarah McNally's talking about uh, neuroscience, she talks about a couple of studies. So meta-analysis, just in case there are some folks who are listening and don't know what that is, basically that's somebody who, it's not original, it's kind of basically somebody does a study on lots of other studies. So they kind of pull, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 studies together and kind of find out, the, you know, the commonalities and all of that. So it's kind of like a broad taste of whatever it is you're trying to look at. It can be very helpful with something like this. So the first meta-analysis was uh, 47 trials and over 300, sorry, not 300, 3,000 participants, over 3,000, I think it was closer to 3,500 actually. And that's a good sample size. Whenever you're looking up legit stats, you want to look at the sample size because you know, if they, if they surveyed, you know, five people in the backyard, it's really not a study you want to pay a lot of attention to. I'm just saying. Okay. So over almost 3,500 um, participants, and they found that the mindfulness practice decreased anxi- levels of anxiety, decreased levels of depression, and decreased physical pain. Huge. Absolutely huge. Then there was a second meta. This one uh, looked over 163 studies and found that mindfulness practice also led to a de- decreased feelings of negativity and neuroticism. So neuroticism is one of the big five in the personality test. So if you don't, basically it means when somebody's neurotic, it means wound up like a top and on edge most of the time. And if we just put it into regular words and um, it decreased that. And the, so the impact of mindfulness meditation or practicing mindfulness was also comparable, comparable, there we go, to certain, to certain therapeutic treatments such as counseling and some other uh, behavioral treatments. Can you imagine mindfulness being present in the moment, reducing anxiety, reducing depression, reducing physical pain. And in some cases, because we're a disclaimer, we're not saying it's meant to take the place of professional counseling or anything. It it worked though, for some people it worked and it, and it did the trick. And it worked as, as a great compliment, certainly a great compliment to cognitive behavioral therapy or any of the other forms of therapy as well. So then uh, there's also another one in uh, Sarah McNally's article. She, she talks about uh, uh, last year. So this is 2020. It's just to be, um, I guess, 19 must be. 
uh, nature, uh, the Journal of Nature Reviews of Neuroscience and the review of the Neuroscience of Mindfulness, Mindfulness Meditation took a look at the current state of neuroscience research on mindfulness meditation. The authors included Yi Yuan Tang, a mind-body medicine researcher at the Department of Psychological Sciences that was at Texas Tech University, who also practices Chinese medicine. And then another author, Britta Holzel, a neuroscientist and yoga teacher at the Department of Neuroradiology, and that's the Technical University of Munich. And lastly, an author, Michael Posner, a psychologist at the University of Oregon. So here's the thing. So then Sarah talks about, this is freaking incredible. Although meditation research is still in its infancy, it's getting big now though, I'll tell you that. Um, a number of studies have investigated changes in brain activation at rest and during specific tasks that are associated with the practice of, or that follow, training in mindfulness meditation. This is the, this come from these the authors I just mentioned. So now here's what's so freaking cool. There is emerge there's emerging evidence that mindfulness meditation might cause neuroplastic changes in the structure and function of brain regions involved in regulation of attention, emotion and self-awareness. This is so huge because for those of you who, who may not know what neuroplasticity is, it's not plastic like, you know, Fisher Price, you know, cars and trucks plastic. It means that the brain is malleable and flexible and actually wants it wants to heal and is very good at healing itself. Very, very good at healing itself. And this is a huge breakthrough that we're kind of getting that when we remain present in the moment, we can actually increase our self-regulation, which means, you know, controlling our emotions, basically. So we don't fly off the handle as easily. We can sustain attention longer, hold it together longer, right? And as far we can we can go deep within and and become more self-aware, all by remaining in the moment. You could be doing the dishes and having this stuff happen. It's absolutely amazing. Okay, then there was another meta that they talk about in this article, and there were twenty one neuroimaging uh, studies examined went over three hundred experienced meditation practitioners. This is amazing. I just, you know, with my doctorate in cognitive psych, I could literally talk about neurons and brain activity all, all day long and not have one board second. And when you can't, when you, when you put them together with, with well-being stuff, I, my happy bubble is just so full. All right. So anyway, some of the brain regions that we know for a fact based on fMRI brain scans, okay, are the rostrolateral pre prefrontal cortex. Okay, so not to babble anybody to death. The PFC or prefrontal cortex is the part that's right behind your forehead and is responsible for all the real big stuff, like all the metacognitions. That means thinking about thinking. And that's where our, um, um, uh, where we plan, organize, judge, decision-making, reasoning, decision-making, problem-solving, um, all that sort of thing. And we know that that is in a better place, okay, with with meditation. Then the second one is sensory cortices and insular cortex. So the main cortical bulbs are pro the processing of tactile information, such as touch, pain, conscious proprioception, and body awareness. That's amazing. So it's probably the parietal lobe they're talking about. And then the hippocampus, this is a biggie. Stay with me if you're not science people, because the hippocampus, there's one on each side of of the head. It's kind of like where you, if you wear glasses, where your glass, the glasses would kind of fall on your ears. That's where your hippocampi are, one on each side. And the hippocampus is part of the limbic system, which plays a huge role in 
the formation of long-term memory. So just, you know, let that take you away because therefore practicing mindfulness, if it affects, you know, the long-term potentiation of, of forming long-term memories, just think of how that goes really well, especially with, with cognitive decline as we age, practice mindfulness, you're going to be such a better spot. Okay, the next one is anterior cingulate cortex and mid cingulate cortex. So these cortical regions are involved in self-regulation. Huge. That that's an again, that's that's able that's being able to recognize what our emotions are, like I'm frustrated versus angry, and then and then holding it together when we're frustrated or angry. Okay. Emotional regulation, attention, and self-control. So we're talking about um, the overall ability to acknowledge how we're feeling and then manage those emotions in a, in a calmer, more appropriate way, which can only go to good places, right? When we kind of take some deep breaths and don't, even if the person deserves us to, to give us some snark and they deserve some snark back. When we practice mindfulness, we are in a much better place to be able to take the high road and, and it just works out better for everybody, right? And then the last one here that they list is the superior longitudinal fasciculus and corpus callosum. So the subcortical white matter tracks uh, that communicate within and between brain hemispheres. So basically the corpus callosum is kind of like the bridge in between the two hemispheres. And um, just, just this can all, this, you know, the communication between the two, this can only go good places only go good places to practice mindfulness okay and if that isn't exciting enough there were some more specific ways that um, certain brain regions were changed by mindfulness and these have to do these are this is so freaking huge density of brain tissue okay so the the thickness of the of the cord it's like bark on a tree so the thickness of the cortex is outer layer on the brain um is very related to uh, our, our ability to to think and, and process. So the cortical surface area and white matter is, is the part of the brain that's just loaded with myelinated nerve cells, which means and which means that uh, the communication is also enhanced. It also talked about the, the glia cells, which are kind of like the super glue in between, which also enhance communication. So it's in, in essence, practicing mindfulness is helping the brain to function like a well-greased machine. Isn't that exciting? So, because so many regions of the brain were found to involve, or to be involved in mindfulness meditation, including the cerebral cortex, again, bark on a tree, right? Subcortical, subcortical white and gray matter, so that's myelinated and unmyelinated neurons, the brainstem and cerebellum. The cerebellum is so important too, because that, the cerebellum kind of is involved in our, lots of things, but our, um, Balance, voluntary movement, even like, you know, driving a car, touching the steering wheel, kicking a soccer ball. I mean, it's just, this is amazing stuff we're finding here. So the authors, Tang, Holtzel and, po Holtzel and Posner, suggested in their view that the effects of meditation might involve large scale brain networks and multiple aspects of brain function. Isn't that freaking sensational? Okay, and this is this is also um, quite interesting because um, the authors that talk about this, and they say one hypothesis driving emotional regulation is that mindfulness meditation strengthens prefrontal higher order cognitive thinking. Okay, so that the PFC is involved in all this high order thinking processes that in turn modulate activity in brain regions relevant to emotion processing, such as the amygdala. Oh, that's so huge because. 
I'm sure many of you are aware the amygdala is my, per, well, personally my favorite part of the brain, but that's not the part I was saying. I love the amygdala. It's the amygdala is part of the limbic system, a key player in the limbic system, which is involved with the fight or flight. So many people kind of know that the amygdala flips the switch on, do we stay and, you know, bring out our ninja skills when something, you know, dangerous is or threatening us? Or do we, do we run? And also now they've also added the freeze. So the fact that it's involved with sort of taming the amygdala is huge. And then they also go on to say that a number of brain imaging studies appeared to support this hypothesis. It's just all super interesting. Um, and then the authors talk about the Buddhist philosophy teaches that identification with the static concept of self causes psychological distress. Study, studies of mindfulness meditators have shown training to be associated with more positive self-representation, higher self-esteem, and higher acceptance of oneself. I don't know. That's all I need to know right there. I mean, just, I mean, just to spend, to, to just decide, like make a choice, just to, to spend five to 15 minutes per day out of the life minutes that, I should do the math on that, it'd be kind of fun. How many life minutes in 24 hours a day? We got to like take away the sleeping ones, kind of conscious, conscious waking day and figure out taking only 15 minutes out of that, out of all those life minutes for one day to just be present in your life and look what happens. And then they talk about such concepts are not easy to capture in neuroscientific studies. However, multiple studies show the insular is strongly activated during meditation. This is thought to represent amplified awareness of the present moment experience. That right there has me sold. I, man, this shift in self-awareness is one of the major active mechanisms of the beneficial effects of mindfulness meditation. And that, that's what these authors say. This is just, I mean, like, let's start doing it now, right? Start, start being more present in your life right now, because here's the thing, you know, we only have so many life minutes, right? And we take them for granted. They're our most valuable, precious commodity, are our life minutes. And I don't I think we often don't think of that and we just let them slide down the drain. You know, if they circle the drain, they're gone forever. And I know for me, I'm gonna want, you know, with that 15 minutes back, you know, when I'm 90, skydiving. And I and also it can prevent a lot of decline. So if you don't want to, you know, sit on somebody's porch, you know, with an Afghan over your lap making a basket, this could really help. I mean, some of it. Some of it we can't help because there's genetics involved, but a lot of it we really can. And I think people don't realize how much control we have, you know, over our mind health. You know, we're, we're, we're so quick. We kind of know to drink the OJ, yet we don't realize we've got to, we've got to also nurture the mind. The mind is what creates what we're doing every day. You know, we, we're authors of our own script. And we, if we just you know, you know, let the mind kind of get, get soft. It's not going to go anywhere good. We've got to be in the moment if we're going to, you know, grab, grab life by the ass and live a, a full, fulfilled existence. I mean, that's just how it is. And then the, the authors kind of just wind up with as far as future, you know, questions for, for people researching mindfulness that I think, they're pretty hopeful that the practice of mindfulness, you know, might be promising for, for treating clinical psychological disorders and, and also 
facilitating the cultivation. I love that word. It makes me think of farm, rich dirt, harvest. Anyway, cultivation of a healthy mind and increased well-being, right? Sound mind, sound body, sound spirit. All right, so there you have it. The neuroscience underlying mindfulness. This is Kimberly Quinn signing off from Northern Vermont. Have a mindful, mindful, mindful day. Thank you.